Well, I wonder, where does your mind go when I ask the question, what is the greatest hindrance to unity in the church? Maybe you think of our church gathered here. Maybe you think of some previous church experience you've had. But if you're like me, when you think about the biggest hindrance to the unity of the church, it's really easy to think, well, maybe it's that cranky guy that's always barking at the children. You know the one. Or maybe it's that one lady who's so controlling. Maybe it's that older generation who just won't let go. Or maybe it's the younger generation who has no respect for tradition. Maybe it's those theological egghead nitpicky guys who are just ready for an argument all the time. Or or maybe it's those who are so just emotionally driven that they're theologically careless. As we ask the question, what what is the greatest hindrance to the unity of the church It's really easy to think it's something out there. We see the sins of others. We see the damage it does. And we think those things must be the problem. But as Paul addresses unity in the church in Philippi, it becomes immediately clear the biggest hindrance to the unity of the church is not something out there. The biggest hindrance to the unity of the church is something in here. It's my sin. And specifically, it's pride. And so as Paul urges the the Philippian church to live together in this, this radical unity, he's urging them to live together in radical humility. Turn with me, Philippians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 5 to 11 this morning. If you don't have a Bible on you, um, just slip up your hand and one of our ushers will grab you a Bible. We want you to have God's Word open in front of you. Um, There are three basic orientations that a sermon can have. Uh, It could be preacher-driven sermon. It's me deciding, here's what I think you need to hear. Me choosing a good topic and then finding scripture to support it. Uh, Or it might be congregation-driven. What are the felt needs of the congregation? What do the people in the pew need to hear? Or it could be oriented toward the Lord. What does God have to say? What would he have us preach and hear this morning? And that's our goal. The best way I know how to do that uh, is just to open up God's word and try to say what God has already said. And and so if that's our goal together, uh, you will be immensely helped by having God's word open in front of you and you can see exactly what it is that I'm trying to explain. And uh, maybe by God's grace, as I'm bumbling along, you're gonna look down and go, oh, that's it. Why didn't he just say that? I get it. Um, And and the Lord will be at work uh, by his word. Today, uh, we venture onto holy ground. Uh, Don't get me wrong. No scripture is higher than any scripture. All scripture is breathed out by God. Uh, There's no higher category. And yet there are some portions of scripture that are just like mountaintops from which you can look out and see the vast landscape of who God is and and what he's doing. And and this passage that we come through this morning uh, is certainly amongst those notable peaks on the mountaintops of Scripture. Um, The force of this passage, uh, the purpose of it is about unity in the church. That's the, the goal here, living in humility. 
But as Paul makes this point about humility, if you remember from the beginning, it's been all about this gospel-centered, gospel-worthy life, this gospel-worthy unity, and now this gospel-worthy humility. It's all been about the gospel. And so he does this, he makes his point by uncovering a little more about this glorious gospel, uncovering the truths of the incarnation and the humiliation and the glorification of Jesus. And so we have a lot of work to do this morning. Uh, it's a bit tricky. We, we can't simply skim over the theology of this. Um, these are theological topics that are just central to the Christian faith. And, and if we miss the theology, we're going to miss the force of what Paul is saying. On the other hand, we, we can't just get caught up in the application and, and, or sorry, we can't get so caught up in the theology um, that we miss why Paul is saying it, missing the application of it, missing what we're to take out of it. Um, so we're to try and walk that line and, and get both theology and application as we work our way through. Um, let me read this passage and then we'll um, seek to understand it better. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Would you pray with me? Father, we need you, God. As we come to this amazing passage of scripture, the display of the glory of Christ in his humiliation and exaltation, Lord, help us to see it. Help us to see these truths clearly, to understand what you've written, and Lord, that we would walk away changed. Lord, you know um, the brokenness of our hearts, the rebellion that is in us, the pride that is in us. God, we ask you to break it. We ask you to crush that in us, painful as it might be. Would you bring us to humility for the glory of of Christ in the church and for your glory in Christ. Lord, would you speak through me this morning? Would you help me to communicate clearly your word and your truth? Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I've already mentioned, this passage has two clear movements to it. There is the humiliation of Christ and then the exaltation of Christ. Verses 5 to 8 is his, his humiliation, his descending down from glory to the shame of the cross. And then verses 9 to 11, we see his exaltation, his being lifted up again from the grave back to glory. And so first, let's look at this humiliation of Christ, which is our model for humility. Verse 5, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. We need to let this kind of draw us back to verse 2. Paul says, Complete my joy 
by being of the same mind, having the same love, being of full accord and of one mind. So Paul's calling them to this, this radical unity to be joined together, heart, soul, and mind. And then verses three to four, he kind of unpacks what that looks like. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And you see, unpacks that, driving this, this radical unity. That's his desire for the church. And, and we see this rooted in humility. That's how we come to this kind of, of unity. And it has to do with counting others more significant than ourselves, looking to the interests of others. But now he's going to drive this point home. And notice the progression here. Um, right at the beginning of verse 2, uh, sorry, he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. The same mind. And then the end of verse 2, he says, be of one mind. And then verse 5, he's bringing it home. He says, have this mind. This is it. This is the mind that we're to have among ourselves, the way of thinking, that heart attitude that will bring true unity. And it happens only when we have the mind of Christ, when we're humble the way that Jesus was humble. You see, it's unity and humility that comes from the gospel. It comes out of what Christ has done. It's not me trying to trump this up in, my, in myself. If we're going to have this kind of humility that produces unity, we need to understand the cross. We need to understand Jesus and his humiliation and his exaltation. Verse six, he begins telling us, what, what does this mind of Jesus look like? Here it is. Have the mind of Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. If we're gonna understand how far Jesus descended, we need to understand where he started from. Where did he begin Jesus was in the form of God. What does that mean? Does it mean he was God? Or, or is that something a little bit less, just like God? Well, the context will make it clear, but we have to follow the logic of the sentence. I know you thought you finished high school, you were done with grammar and logic, but here it is again. You have to track the, the logic of this sentence. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Notice how Paul moves from the form of God to the equality of God. Those two things are related. Though he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God. And that term grasped then becomes so important. He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And grasped could have two different meanings, couldn't it? And it's the same in the Greek. It's, a, it's actually very unusual word. It's really, it's not used often. It's very hard to understand what exactly is he getting at. And it could mean either to, to grasp as in to reach out and steal, to take something that was not his own. So it, that would mean that equality with God was something that Jesus didn't have, but was trying to get. Or it could mean hang on to, take advantage of. And so then it would be referring to something he did possess but willingly gave up. And the next phrase makes clear which one he's talking about, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. You can't empty yourself of something you don't have. 
He emptied himself of what he possessed. Um, otherwise, it's not emptying. It doesn't say that he, he refused to seek after what he didn't have. It says he gave up what he did have. And so following the logic backwards, then he emptied himself means that grasped is referring to something that he had but refused to hang on to. And what did he have? Equality with God. So the form of God then is clearly the fact that he had equality with God. Before that first Christmas, before he came to earth, where was Jesus? He was existing eternally as God, in equality with God. That is a huge statement. It's the Trinity. And uh, are there other verses in the Bible that back this up? I mean, that's a massive doctrine to hang on just one verse. Well, it's all over the place. Colossians 2.9 is so clear. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwelt bodily. Whole fullness. It's intentionally redundant. Every part of all of it. Jesus was not lacking in any part of what it meant to be God. All the fullness of God was in Christ. Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. Long ago at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. That's Jesus, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty. So Jesus is the son of God through whom God created the world. Jesus is the creator. When you read Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God did it as Jesus did it. They're one and the same. Jesus is the creator of the world. And it's interesting, the, the spirit then is hovering over the waters. It's the Trinity right there. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is not only the creator of the world, he's the sustainer of the world. The world continues to exist because Jesus holds it together by his power. And he's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is the glory, the magnificence, the wonder of God made visible for us to see. And there are those who will say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, if you read through the Gospels with eyes to see it, every one of his miracles is him saying, I am God, I am God, I am God. John 5, 18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. That's how they understood it. Those listening to him in his day understood that he was making himself equal to God. That's why they killed him. Scripture teaches us all over the place. Jesus existed for eternity past as part of the Trinity, as God himself and yet, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be hung on to. He had full rights. I mean, think about it. Who deserves anything more than the creator? It's his. He holds it together. 
He deserves everything. And yet, he didn't consider that a thing to be hung on to, to be taken advantage of. That's humility. We get so caught up in our rights. I deserve to be treated with respect. I deserve to be heard. I deserve this position or that position. I deserve an apology. I deserve, I deserve, I deserve. It's the opposite of the mind of Christ. He actually deserved everything and he claimed none of it. He let it go. He had equality with God and gave up the rights and privileges that went with it. He emptied himself. Now, be careful here. He doesn't empty himself of his deity. He doesn't become less God in any way. Notice how he empties himself by taking on the form of the servant, by taking on humanity. So he releases the rights and privileges of deity, not deity of itself, And he sets that aside, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And again, you see this contrast, right? He was in the form of God. It's it's present, active. He was continuing to exist in the form of God. And he took on the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men. Those things are, are secondary to who he is. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. It's a great way to start off December. It's the incarnation. It's deity taking on flesh, encarne. You ever order in a fancy Italian restaurant? Um, It's Jesus con carne with meat on. Um, That's it. The second person of the Trinity who dwelt in eternally unapproachable light the creator of everything that is descending in an unfathomable distance to become part of his creation, taking on human flesh. And not only did he live a, a human life confined by this skin, feeling things like hunger and thirst and pain, but it wasn't even a very glamorous human life. He's born in a feed trough. Isaiah 53 says he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. You get the picture there? This little root coming up out of the cracked earth. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. You hear people say, oh, I wish I had lived in that day when Jesus was on earth. Just to, just to look on the face of Jesus. No, you wouldn't have. There's a good chance you would have turned your face away. It's like that, that homeless guy that you don't make eye contact with. He's the kind of man from whom people hide their faces. There was nothing to look at. He wasn't impressive. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Philippians 2.8 then takes it lower yet. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, 
even death on a cross. He didn't stop at simply becoming human, but as human, he stooped to the lowest of human experiences, death. Boy, my, my first position as pastor was in an older church, and I was a youth pastor, but we had about a funeral a month for the four years that I was there, it seemed like. Maybe that's a little exaggeration, um, but regular. And I got to sit by many a dying bedside. There's nothing more humiliating than death. I have nothing left. I have no strength. I have no power. I'm helpless in the face of death. And not just death, but the shameful, despised, incredibly cruel and torturous death on a cross. The Roman cross was reserved for only the worst of criminals, the lowest of the low, the dirt of society. And he died willingly, able at any moment to call 12 legions of angels to come to his rescue. Even, think about it, personally sustaining the lives of those who were taking his own life. And he didn't even open his mouth in protest. He died willingly and he died wrongfully. You see, death is connected to sin. We die because of sin. Jesus had no sin. There's no reason that he should have died. Isaiah goes on to explain, verses 4 to 6, Surely he bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds were healed. All like we all like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. On the cross, this perfect, glorious God who dwelt for eternity in heaven not only took on death, but took on himself the actual burden and guilt of sin. I don't think we can grasp how offensive and, and disgusting that is. The Holy One, guilty of the hatred of God, of rebellion, of murder, of lying and theft and lust and rape and all of it, guilty. He took the guilt. And then he bore that punishment in our place. Never once demanding justice be done. This is wrong. This is a mistrial. Never once demanding his rights. That's the humility of Christ. It's shocking that he was in the most exalted place imaginable and beyond imaginable descended to the lowest pit being wrongfully accused and sentenced and willingly bore the full punishment of God himself looking not to his own interests but to the interests of others that's the humility of Christ that's what he did to to condescend to you and to me to take up and 
carry the burden of our sin to come to our rescue when we were totally helpless and hopeless. How amazing is that humility? The Son of God came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Do you know him as that humble Savior? He welcomes you. He calls you, come to me. Turn from sin and death and trust in me for life and and joy. Jesus himself says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. There's no need for a priest. There's no need to pray to Mary or the saints or anyone else. Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. He welcomes us. Come, come to me. Rest in him. Find mercy and grace and help. And having seen then the humility of Christ, having trusted in him and so greatly benefited from his humility, we ought to have this mind among ourselves. Think the same way that Jesus thought. This is what humility looks like. This is the the mindset that we're to have together among yourselves, all of us. And it's ours. It's ours in Christ Jesus. Now, that's very intentional. It's not ours in ourselves, right? It's not ours in Adam, that is to say, in our humanity, Look at the contrast here. Have you noticed this between Christ and Adam? It's shocking. Christ existed as God in eternity past. He had it. He had equality with God. He didn't cling to that and hold on to it, but he laid it down willingly, taking on the form of a servant and being obedient to death. Adam was created He was given this amazing gift of being made in the image of God. That wasn't enough. He grasped up. He tried to reach for more. I want to be like God. And in that, he unwillingly became a slave to sin. And death came as the result of his disobedience. In Adam, our natural state that we inherit from him, from our fallen human nature is is that we just want to have a higher position. We want to have more. We want to defend our rights. Trying to get everyone and everything to serve us. But in Christ, it's a different story. In Christ, there's something radically different here. Don't underestimate the wonder of what salvation really is, what it means to be in Christ. It's not just someone getting religion. 
It's not just going to church. It's not just a a decision that I'm going to live better now. It's not even just a decision that I'm going to follow Christ. At its core, salvation is a miracle from God called regeneration. It is a radical transformation of the human heart from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh, from, from a hardened sinful nature after the model of Adam to a new life, new heart, new desires created after the image of Christ. That's what we're talking about here. You're a new person. You're part of a new human race. In Christ, God hits the reset button. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And in Christ, we have this mind. This way of thinking that we inherit as as part of this new family, this new genetic family tree. But there's still a need to command it. Paul says, have this mind. We're so often like that institutionalized prisoner who's just been in jail for so long that when the doors open and he's set free, he just doesn't know what to do? What does freedom even look like? We were slaves to sin and and Jesus came in and and tore the door off the hinges and how often do we sit there in the bed in our cell wondering what it would be like to live in freedom, looking out longingly. Paul says, no, this is yours. Go live in it. It's been given to you. Have this freedom. Do we live in this kind of humility? This is the root of of unity in the church. This is the root of of what it it means to live together in, in this heart, soul, and mind unity. When believers realize the freedom that we have, this new mind in Christ, and we walk out of the cell of pride, we leave that behind. And like Christ, we lay down our rights not counting ourselves deserving of anything, but considering the the needs of others. Being willing as Christ was to, to enter into the experience and pain and sorrow and trouble of someone else and begin to take that on ourselves. I'll walk this with you. I'll carry this burden with you joyfully because that's what Christ has done for me on an infinitely larger scale and that's what I need other believers to do for me. If every believer would have this mind, would think this way. And church, I see this. This happens here. It gives me so much joy to see it, but I want to just encourage you, let's abound more and more in this love. That's the kind of people we want to be around. That's the kind of church that that we want to be a part of. That's a church that never splits. This is a church that is not racked by conflict, by backbiting and, and division, by gossip and bitterness. All of those stem out of pride, out of me demanding my rights. Church, let us have this mind among ourselves because it's ours in Christ Jesus. What rights are you grasping after? What selfish ambitions still drive the way that you think, the way that you operate, the way that you respond to people, maybe even when they hurt you? 
Lay it down. Let it go. In love and service of others to the glory of Christ. That's a, that's a scary place to be, isn't it? If I don't protect my pride, who will? If I just let the walls down, what will happen to me? This is, this is huge potential for massive pain for me, isn't it? And that's why I think he turns then to verse 9. This incredible therefore. And, and this is the pivot point in the life of Christ. Here we turn from the humiliation of Christ, which is our model of humility, to the exaltation of Christ, which is the motivation for our humility. Let me read verses 9 to 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amazing. Radically different picture than verses 5 to 8. Whole new story being written all of the sudden here. And notice that Christ humbled himself and God exalted him. Exalted him to the point that at the name of Jesus, listen to the, the completeness here, the totality of all of this. Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is complete exaltation. It's everything. Every knee is physical submission. Every tongue is a verbal declaration of submission. Heaven and earth and under the earth is his way of saying earthly beings and heavenly beings and demonic beings, the living and the dead, everyone will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, without exception. Now we talked about Jesus' past existence from before the creation of the world, before the incarnation, as God himself. Here we get to his future existence. Who will he be into eternity future? Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. What does that mean? The word Lord is a fairly simple term. It just means master. It's, it's pretty basic. Every, you know, probably half the Roman population uh, had a master in that day. But if you've been tracking with us the last few months as we worked through Exodus, you know there's a lot packed into that term, Lord. Exodus 3, God said to Moses, my name is I am, is Yahweh in Hebrew. That's God's unique personal name that he gives to Moses as he sends him back to Egypt to rescue the people of Israel. But then as we come to Exodus 20 and the, the Ten Commandments, the Lord says, do not take my name in vain. And because of that, the Jews, trying to be overly careful never to misuse the name of the Lord, um, they will never speak the name of the Lord. They won't do it. I have friends to this day who will even write in their papers G-D. They won't write God. I don't want to take the Lord's name in vain. I'll just say that totally misses the application of this commandment, but that's what they did. So the Jews reading through the Old Testament, when they came to the word Yahweh, this has been Jesus growing up years 
Paul was trained in this. As they came to the word Yahweh in scripture, they would read Yahweh and they would say Adonai, which is Lord, Master. And so this word Lord became very significant. It's become infused with, in certain circumstances, the very name of God. Actually, we still do this to this day. If you're reading through the Old Testament in just about any modern translation, you'll see the word Lord in all capital letters. That's the name of the Lord. It's Yahweh behind that. I kind of wish they wouldn't do that. I don't know how you translate that better. I get I am is a little bit confusing. Um, But that's what's there. We write Lord and and, and the, the word there is Yahweh. It's the name of God. And so what is Paul's intent here? Is everyone saying that Jesus Christ is Lord, as in master, that's, that's pretty significant, or are they saying that Jesus Christ is Lord in a much higher sense? Saying that Jesus Christ is God himself, is Yahweh. Well, there's a hint, I think, in the theme running through these verses. It's not asking what title will Jesus have. The question that is begged is very clear, that Jesus will give a name. The name of Jesus. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. He'll be given the name that is above every name. Well, what name is that? That Jesus Christ is Lord. And the final nail. I saw this a month ago as I was reading through Isaiah and went, oh, I'm going to log this away. We're coming up to this. Isaiah 45, verse 22 This is Yahweh speaking, no doubt about that. It's very clear. These are the words of God. He says, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other. That is so clear. I am God, there is no other. By myself I have sworn and from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. Boy, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. From my mouth has gone out a word that shall not return And to me, every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. There it is. It's the same words. Paul is quoting the words of Yahweh in Isaiah and now he's applying them to Jesus. Yahweh said in in Isaiah, I am God and there is no other. Turn to me and be saved. And to me, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. And now Paul says, oh, that's Jesus. That's Jesus. Turn to Jesus and be saved. And and to Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess because Jesus Christ is Lord in the highest possible sense. It's the Trinity. It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as, as one God. Now it's important to note, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. That does not mean all will be saved. Every tongue will confess, but not all of them willingly. I don't know if you had an older brother. I had an older brother. He wasn't much older, but he was much stronger. Um, This is the older brother putting you in the arm bar. Say, uncle, tell me I'm awesome, right? What are you going to do? You've been totally beaten. That's what's happening here. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Satan, the demons, the souls in hell will admit to their own shame and defeat and demise that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
And Jesus will be super exalted above all things. Why? Yes, because he's God himself, but, but according to the logic of this passage, um, he's exalted because of his humility. Verses five through eight talk about him descending from glory and taking on the form of a servant and being crucified on the cross. And then verse nine begins with, therefore, because of that, God has highly exalted him. Why is Paul telling us this? How does this fit in the, the flow, what he's, what he's trying to urge the, the, the Philippians in humility? It makes sense, verses 5 to 8, be humble as Christ was humble. Look and see the humility of Christ. But why the exaltation? It's hope. This is our motivation. As we ask that question, why would I humble myself? Why would I, why would I stop protecting my own pride my own needs, why would I not care for myself? He says, this is why. Look what happened to Christ when he humbled himself. God lifted him up. God then exalted him. He didn't lift himself up. He laid himself down. God did the exalting. And this is the promise we have. James 4.10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Jesus himself taught about the, the Pharisee and the tax collector who go to the temple to pray. Do you remember that, that story? And the, and the Pharisee is so proud and he builds himself up and for good reason, he's, he's this immaculate picture of what it means to be a righteous Jew. And the tax collector won't even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beats in his brow and he says, oh, have mercy on me. And Jesus says in verse 14, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. If you've been exalting yourself, if you have that reflex in you, let's be honest, we all do. I need to protect my pride. I need to guard that. I need to make sure that I'm getting my rights and fighting for my status and my reputation. And you make sure that treat people treat me properly. Be warned, God will humble you. Especially those who by their pride bring division in the church. The Lord won't tolerate that. If that pride in you is because you've not submitted to Christ, because you've not given yourself to, to trust in him, to willingly declare Jesus is Lord, then the wrath of God awaits. Those who, who will not bend the knee until they're forced. That's what hell is about. But even for those who are saved, I've, I've submitted to Christ, I've trusted in him, and, and yet I still see this reflex at work in me. Your sin is paid for. The wrath of God is taken away. There's no, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But there's discipline. God disciplines his children, sometimes through painful circumstances. 
If you exalt yourself, God will humble you. He will bring you down. But if you'll humble yourself, if you'll live in the mind of Christ, looking not to your own interest, but to the interest of others, taking that massive risk and saying, okay, God, I will not protect myself. You do it. In due time, he will lift you up. He will exalt you. Now that may not be here in this earth. Maybe it will be, but maybe not. There isn't a promise that it will happen within the week, within the month, within your lifetime. But there is certainly a promise that as Christ was raised from the dead, we too will be raised to eternal life. Our earthly bodies raised imperishable with a heavenly glory, exalted. You will not in the end be put to shame. You will not in the end be left wondering, was it worth it? No one will say, I sacrificed my pride for Christ and it was not worth it. I gave up more than I got back. No one will look at you in the end and say, why did that fool give himself to Christ? Why did he live in such a lowly way, serving others, always giving, never receiving, never considering his own needs? He had one life and he gave it up. And for what? It would have been better for him to live selfishly and to enjoy this life now. No, no one will say that. You will be exalted. You'll be lifted up. I want to draw one last conclusion from the exaltation of Christ. Notice verse 11. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lest we misunderstand what our exaltation looks like. The exaltation of Christ points upwards. His humiliation was obedience to the Father, and the Father exalted him in such a way as to show so much more clearly the glory of the Father. After all, it's the Father who did the exalting. How much more glorious must the Father be? 1 Corinthians 15, 27 and 28 um, lays this out, but the logic is a little bit confusing, so track with me here. For God has put all things in subjection, that's in submission under his feet, that's under Christ. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he, that's God, is accepted. He's left out of that. It's plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. So when it says God put all things under Christ, surely the God who put all things there was not part of what was put under Christ. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. That's God, that God may be all in all. Do you you see the, the picture here? So once God has made every knee bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, even Jesus then will bow and submit to the Father so that God the Father may be the ultimate recipient of all glory and honor and worship. There's this kind of submission within the Trinity. It all comes back to God the Father. So how do we fit? 
How does our being glorified fit with all glory culminating in God? How do we fit in this this glorification food chain? Well, Christ is the glory of the Father, and the church is the glory of Christ. We're his body. We're his redeemed people, his trophy of those that he purchased out from this sinful world. We're the bride of Christ. And the beauty and the joy of the bride points to the glory of the husband. And think Jewish culture, even more it points to the father who presented this bride to his son. So as the church... We glorify the Father in Christ as we live in this humility, this love for one another, trusting that gaining Christ will be 10,000 times better than anything we give up here. That any risk that we take, that any loss we have in this world will be absolutely overshadowed to the point of insignificance by what we gain in Christ in eternity. And we glorify God into eternity as we rejoice in Christ. As we declare that he is better. As we're proved right to having bet everything on him. Psalm 31, 19. How abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. 1 Corinthians 2.9, but as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. That's our hope. Jesus is better. We have confidence in the fact that because God exalted Jesus as he humbled himself, that if we would humble ourselves as well, we will be exalted as well to the glory of Christ and the glory of God. That there will be ultimate, unlimited joy as we find ourselves in our rightful place, worshiping Christ. That is what ought to motivate us to this radical humility. That's what frees us then to lay down our lives, knowing with confidence that those who humble themselves before the Lord will find unending joy in Him that the glory of God might be put on display in Christ as he's magnified in the exaltation and joy of his church.